Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to a Word to the Wise podcast series. I'm Krista Leonard, partner at Kingston Reed. We are one year into the Australian government's roadmap for respect, preventing and addressing sexual harassment in Australian workplaces. The roadmap for respect was released on the 8th of April 2021 and was touted at the time as a comprehensive pathway forward for Australia to prevent and address sexual harassment and support meaningful cultural change in our workplaces. Through the roadmap for the respect for respect the government agreed or noted all 55 of the Australian Human Rights Commission's recommendations outlined in its Respect at Work report. So one year in and on the eve of a federal election we'll take a look at what has happened in relation to the implementation during the last year and discuss whether the roadmap is working and what this means for employers and employees. I'm joined today by my wonderful colleague, Sophie Bartz, a senior associate in our Brisbane office. Hello, Sophie. Hello. And by Linda West, managing director of a company called OnPoint, Australia's first workplace ombudsman service. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Anello. The Respect at Work report commissioned by the Australian Human Rights Commission and published in March 2020 was focused on providing a new framework for prevention and reporting of sexual harassment in the workplace. Now the underlying premise of the report was that workplace sexual harassment is not inevitable, it's not acceptable and it is preventable. The report contained 55 recommendations, 43 of which Uh, have over the course of the past year either been fully implemented or fully funded. Now, Sophie, it would be great if you could take us through some of those key recommendations that have been actioned in a moment. But before we do that, the federal government in implementing the Roadmap for Respect emphasised the government's response to the recommendation was guided by five key principles. And Lyndall, I'd like to understand from you what those principles were. Thanks, Krista. And interestingly, these key principles are things that management and boards should be focused on. They are that one, everyone has the right to be safe at work. Two, that policy should be evidence-based. Three, prevention must be the focus. Four, simplicity and clarity makes the laws easier for Australians to understand and access. And five, laws must be consistent with broader legal frameworks. So I'm keen to explore the first three of those principles with you, Lendl, in a bit more depth. But I do want to go back to you, Sophie, and ask you to take us through the steps that have been undertaken to achieve those principles that concern principally the access to and the understanding of legal obligations and the legislation that has been passed recently. Sure. Uh, The federal government adopted nine out of the 15 recommended legislative amendments to date, with one notable exclusion, and that's the introduction of a positive duty on employers to eliminate sexual harassment from the workplace. One of the key changes adopted was to add a new object to the Commonwealth Sex Discrimination Act to achieve equality of opportunity between men and women. There was also an amendment to the Australian Human Rights Commission Act to extend the time period that the president of the AHRC may terminate a complaint of sexual harassment from six months to two years from the date of the alleged conduct. And further, the Fair Work Work Act has been amended to include the introduction of a power of the Fair Work Commission to order that sexual harassment stop, legislating a definition of sexual harassment in the Fair Work Act, 
clarifying that sexual harassment at work can be a valid reason for dismissal and also that compassionate leave entitlements are now available for people who suffer a miscarriage. So a definition of sexual harassment has long existed in the Commonwealth Sex Discrimination Act and in the various state-based acts, broadly as being unwelcome behaviour of a sexual nature that makes you feel offended, humiliated or intimidated. So how is it defined in the Fair Work Act, Soph? Right. Well, the Fair Work Act, in the Fair Work Act, a person will sexually harass another person if they make an unwelcome sexual advance, make an unwelcome request for sexual favours or engage in other unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. For a person to have been sexually harassed by someone, it has to be reasonable to expect that in the situation there's a possibility that their behaviour would offend, humiliate or intimidate the other person. So it's consistent, with, uh, consistent obviously, with the long-standing definition. Of course, when you apply the definition of pra- in practice, context becomes key, particularly around the situation, so the circumstances may be taken into account, that may be taken into account, include factors such as the sex, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, intersex status, marital or relationship status of the person harassed, and the relationship between the person harassed and the person who made the advance or request or who engaged in the conduct and any other relevant circumstances. So at the end of the day, it's unwanted sexual behaviour of a sexual nature that would offend, humiliate or intimidate the other person and that now sits as, and it now sits as a definition in the key federal legislation dealing with employment being the Fair Work Act as distinct from just sitting in the key discrimination legislation. And of course, the Fair Work Act now contains an avenue, doesn't it, for an individual to seek orders to stop sexual harassment. Tell us about what that involves. Yes. The Fair Work Commission, to be able to make an order to stop sexual harassment, it must be satisfied that not only had the worker been experienced sexual harassment at work by an individual or individuals, but there must also be a risk that the worker will continue to be sexually harassed at work by the individual or those individuals involved. So it's not dissimilar to the stop bullying orders. Exactly. Applying a dictionary definition of risk, that would mean that an exposure to the hazard or a chance of continued sexual harassment. Relevant considerations may include whether the worker is still in contact with the individual or individuals at work and any action that may have been taken to deal with the behaviour. If there is no risk that the applicant will continue to be sexually harassed at work by the individual or individuals named in the application, for instance, because they've left the organisation, the Commission has no power to make those orders. And we actually saw this in a recent decision of the Fair Work Commission in the analogous anti-bullying application before the Commission that was ultimately dismissed by Commissioner Simpson as he found that there was no evidence to suggest that there was a risk that the applicant would continue to be bullied at work and the application was dismissed on the grounds that it had no reasonable prospects of success. And the final amendment to the Fair Work Act that was made was to confirm that sexual harassment is in fact a form of serious misconduct and can be a valid reason for dismissal under the Act. And that's not overly controversial, I guess, as employment lawyers and the HR professionals listening in today will tell you that substantiated misconduct of a sexual nature as has always been a valid reason for dismissal. I think this is really a, a positive inclusion or clarification into what constitutes uh, serious misconduct. 
So, Lyndall, I'm keen to hear your views about the government's recommendations and where it sits on its roadmap to respect. And that's because as someone who assists business, manage workplace conflict in your everyday job and the issues associated with the difficulty around victims of sexual harassment speaking up, you're at the coal front really of what it means to practice in practice to employers managing this issue in the workplace. Yeah, Krista, I think the reality is that everybody needs to feel safe at work. And that goes without saying, it's a basic human right. But how the message is broadcast and received in the organisation really starts at the top. And so this has become really a focus for boards and executive teams. It's about looking at it from a risk management perspective, but it's also about thinking about it at a cultural level. And that's more than just putting up values on a wall or on mouse pads. It needs to be about tangible steps employers take when something goes on in the organisation. One organisation I was speaking to recently said they used their town hall meetings as a forum to publicly state how many cases that they had and what the consequences of those are. And I think calling out that behaviour and the public recognition of it is absolutely something that is a significant step in both dealing with the situation but also transforming the culture of that organisation. Right. And in respect of policy being evidence-based. I mean, this is something that the, the Respect at Work report really focused in on and the government's taken up as part of its mantra of, of its roadmap. There's loads of evidence out there on why it's so difficult for victims of sexual harassment to speak up and the challenges around, you know, power imbalances or the lack of trust in and or faith in reporting of confidentiality concerns and the like and just dealing with the trauma and the will I be believed threshold of you know concern what are you seeing best practice that organizations you're working with are doing to to break this down Thanks, Krista. And I think you're right. Recently, AMP actually came out with some reporting. Over the last two years, they'd had 10 cases of sexual harassment that had been reported and investigated. And without knowing the details of those, only three of those cases were substantiated. So that means that there were a lot of people in that organisation who went through formal investigations only to find that the allegations were unsubstantiated. And then at the end of that, everybody said, thanks very much, let's go back and continue on. And I think the reality is what that that suggests to us is that early intervention has to be the key. It has to be about getting in there early when people are first faced with this behaviour and being able to deal with it in an informal manner. And we talk a lot about that with our clients when it comes to how you embrace this issue culturally within the organisation, don't we? And we talk about when we're doing positive bystander training, the importance of early intervention, uh, because there is really that hesitancy around reporting, in part because you lose control once you've reported and it, it goes off into a formal confidential process. And as you say, because often you risk an outcome that, that isn't necessarily a, something that a, a person wants to hear at the end of the day. And then there's the the fallout of that at the end when those recommendations and findings are communicated to the individuals. And I think that probably leads into the, the third of the five focus areas of the government's roadmap. And that's really that prevention, as you say, is, is key and the steps that employers can and should be taking to really try and prevent this, stop it before it starts or to pull it up early. And, and I think that you've probably got a lot of lessons learned in, in your professional life as to some of the key things that employers can do. Yeah, Krista, it's a really difficult one, I guess, because 
organisations are faced with the prospect of when their employees come to them and want some advice on it, on a, on a situation like this, that they feel that they, their only option is to go with a formal option. And I think in a lot of cases, the victims really are looking for both the skills and the confidence to have those conversations on an informal basis. And I'm, you know, can sort of reflect on situations that I've had in the past where, you know, quite senior employees have struggled with the concept of how to have a conversation to say, stop, you know, mentioning my appearance when I walk into the room, stop, you know, sort of putting your hand on my back when we're when we're standing waiting to, to go into a room, those sorts of um, things. Whilst I recognise that there's other forms of sexual harassment which are a, a lot more serious, these particular circumstances are ones where if the individual has the skills and confidence, we can intervene early, they can have the right conversations and in the majority of cases stop the sexual harassment before it escalates. And the Respect at Work report showed the importance of giving those impacted individuals a choice, right, of not just those formal avenues for report, but in how to decide to handle, you know, the matters. And of course, whilst it's it's always good at the outset of a, a process to, to speak with the, the victim or the complainant and ask them about their input and what they want at the end of it, that doesn't necessarily mean the organisation ends up proceeding with the way that the complainant wishes, but it's good to be able to engage with them and to, to work out the best way to make it easier for them through that process. Uh, and give them the confidence to speak up. There's obviously, in addition, a lot of support around the edges, around the psychological support and the like, uh, and also the integration of the relationships back in the workplace post an event. Tell us a bit about that and, and, and what some of the key recommendations or findings through on point that, that you have. Yeah, thanks, Krista. And look, organisations over the course of the pandemic particularly have been investing very heavily in mental health support. So again, some of the organisations that I've been speaking to have been talking about their EAP usage rates going from an average of sort of 5 and 6% up to sort of 13%. I think that's just a reflection of people accessing um, those support services. Again, another organisation I was speaking to the other day have actually gone to the point of employing a psychologist on staff to help support their employees not necessarily just because of sexual harassment, but there's obviously a, a lot of fallout that comes from those sort of circumstances. So again, I guess it's about keeping a broad view or handle on the different ways in which organisations can support their workers. And it's not just victims or complainants, also the support mechanisms for respondents throughout a, a process where a complaint has been made or issues are identified. And certainly there's a lot that still needs to be done and, and it really is about continuous improvement. And that's key, uh, I think, for all of you listening today and, and the message that you take back to particularly your boards, to executive managers and, you know, understanding that sexual harassment really is first and foremost, a work health safety issue. It's no longer the HR issue, sitting there with, with singly with, with HR. Risk registers need to include sexual harassment reporting. And I think, Lyndall, as you said, organisations calling out the reports and the, the way in which they're managing matters whilst maintaining confidentiality is a, is a good, good thing. Uh, and certainly audits focusing on what steps are being taken by organisations to prevent sexual harassment and beyond having policies and, and training for employees. Thank you very much, Lyndall, for your insight and input. If you are interested in having a look at what OnPoint does, you can head over to OnPoint's website. That's O-M-B-P-O-I-N-T.com. Thanks, Sophie. It's always a pleasure listening and chatting with you about all things, including this topic.